This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Thanks to Tim Shepherd for filling in over the past couple of days. We're getting stuck back into it. World Pride kicking off this week. Huge, huge global event. It's actually the biggest global event in Sydney since the Olympics in the year 2000. How crazy is that? Thousands are coming from all over the world. The parties are obviously going to be insane. But there's more important stuff about World Pride. It's an opportunity to talk about equality, raising awareness of issues facing queer people around the globe. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be bringing you big conversations to mark Pride. And one of those is coming up. A chat with someone you know pretty well here on Hack, Christian Wilkins. You're going to learn a lot more about Christian's story. Maybe you don't know a whole lot about Christian. Like you see a lot of photos of him. You hear him on the shake-up. Maybe you've seen articles written about him. But this is him in his words. You don't want to miss this one. First, though, we're checking in on a big story. Running for their lives. Shaken to their foundations, whole buildings fell. So the death toll from the earthquake that decimated parts of Turkey and Syria last week has now passed 40,000. Australia's committed millions of dollars to helping in the ongoing rescue and recovery efforts and to help those who've survived to get started with their lives again. But in Syria, the response has been moving pretty slowly because there've been issues getting aid to parts of the country that are controlled by rebels. It's meant people were left trapped under the rubble for days as they waited for help. Our reporter April McLennan brings us the latest and just a heads up, you might find parts of this story distressing. A bulldozer scoops up earth, digging one of many mass graves for the more than 40,000 people who were killed in Turkey and neighbouring Syria last week when two earthquakes struck the area. Buildings were flattened, burying residents under lumps of concrete and twisted metal. Now, wrapped in coloured cloth, their bodies are laid to rest in the ground as they're buried once again. On the 12th hour after the earthquake, we found them, but we couldn't get to them until the 50th hour. Although we informed the search and rescue team, no one came to help. This family have been left to dig their own graves to say goodbye. It's believed tens of thousands of bodies remain trapped under the rubble. And despite the odds being stacked against them, a few victims have miraculously been found alive after being trapped for days. One teenager was rescued from the rubble in Turkey about a week after the quake. For those who've survived, many have nowhere to go after the quake destroyed their homes. Some take shelter in cars, on the streets and in makeshift camps. But a lot of these places have no running water, no electricity and no toilets. The UN reckons more than a million people will be homeless in Turkey and just across the border in Syria, it's estimated that another 5 million people have no homes. Our conditions are really bad. We are freezing. We are sleeping in the yard of a mosque. We can't find shelter. There is no water, no electricity. All of our children are sick. The first night there was snow and rain pouring down on us. We couldn't find a place to take shelter. No one came. We stayed outside for four days. And while international support poured into Turkey, the response on the other side of the border in Syria has been much slower. 
The over-a-decade-long civil war has hampered efforts. Ishmael al-Abdulli is with the Syria's White Helmets Rescue Group and says more aid is desperately needed. In every city, in every, city, in every village, there are the same thing. There are people under the, under the rubble. But the, the, the situation is still worse and getting worse because as the time passes, we lose lives. Uh, we lose lives in every second. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update, and we're getting some messages through. Someone says, yes, politics getting in the way of humanitarian aid, and it's not the first time. Let's get a bit more analysis of what is happening here. Dr. Dara Conduit from the University of Melbourne is an expert in Middle East politics, and she's with us now. Hey, Dara, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for inviting me. How different has the response been to this earthquake in Syria as opposed to Turkey across the border? So it's been it's been a very different response. The epicenter of the earthquake was in Turkey, so um, you know, well, enormous amounts of uh, enormous rescue efforts have been mounted there, rightly, because the death toll is is much larger there. It's been a very different story in northwest Syria, which is a part of Syria that's no longer under control of the government as a result of the Syrian civil war, um, but. As it is completely, I guess, uh, you know, boarded off and the uh, aid trucks have not been able to get through, uh, largely because of the politics of the civil war. Okay, so there's this civil war that's been happening for a decade. What is like some of the issue that's stopping aid from getting where it's needed? Is it rebels? Is it government forces that are saying, no, you can't come through here? So there's been a long-standing issue in Syria in relation to the delivery of humanitarian aid. Uh, back in 2014, the United Nations, uh, who would normally deliver aid through the capital city of a country, uh, the UN Security Council passed a resolution allowing aid to be passed through four international borders of Syria, just recognising that because of the nature of the war that civilians stuck in other parts of the country that weren't government controlled couldn't literally couldn't get aid. So this resolution was passed. And this is how millions and millions of people in other parts of Syria have received aid since then. Over the years, um, those four border crossings have been reduced. And in 2020, um, because the, the resolution goes to... Uh, has to be renewed every six to 12 months by the Security Council. And every time it's up for resolution, Russia threatens to veto the resolution entirely and to totally cut off aid from outside Syria. Uh, and in 2020, it was reduced to one border. So when the uh, the earthquake happened, there was literally one border crossing through which the UN could get aid into northwest Syria. And the road uh, on the way to that border crossing was uh, damaged. So it took four or five days for aid to get in from wow. the outside. So is there more the United Nations could be doing here to get help into Syria? There's an enormous amount more the United Nations can be doing. First of all, um, there are multiple border crossings into northwest Syria. There are, um, there's actually, well, there's four of them to be precise. Uh, and international legal experts have for I think since about 2014, made it very clear that while the United Nations uh, interprets the UN Security Council resolution to the letter, so it says we just follow exactly what we're allowed to do with that, international legal experts have said, well, actually, no, there's no, um, there's no international legal barriers to you using these other borders. So the UN could have been using those other borders 
over the past decade, frankly, uh, but certainly since the earthquake happened, could have used those borders to get life-saving access into people who were literally trapped under the rubble in freezing conditions. Time was not on their side and now it's too late. So why is it that they haven't been doing that? Because like you say, it's you know a long-standing issue getting aid into Syria. It's not just since uh, this horrible, devastating quake. It's a war that's affected the country and so many people who've been desperate for help. The UN is, um, I guess it's a, it's a diplomatic body and it's always careful to not upset people, I guess is the first thing, but it it is absolutely beholden to um, the regime and it, it wants to work with regime approval. I think it argues, I think the, the argument probably behind closed doors in the UN is that it's better to maintain some relationship with the Syrian regime um, and to therefore work with, you know, what they can, it can sort of get out of it because then it can deliver aid to all of Syria. It's, there's there's millions of people inside Syria right. unrelated to this earthquake who need aid as well. So the, the UN is sort of, sort of trying to balance a lot of different needs. But in this case, I think over the last, over the last, I guess, since 2014, the UN has pretty much allowed the regime to call the shots. I mean, we know that the Syrian regime uh, you know, it punitively withholds aid. The regime claims that, well, actually, look, the war has has sort of, um, you know, it's dormant now. All aid should come through us. But we know that, um, you know, it it often withholds aid. I mean, th- we still haven't had an aid truck get through from regime-held Syria. Um, one truck who's which has tried to get into parts, a part of Aleppo, which is um, is controlled by the regime, uh, I've just seen a report that after sitting f- in trucks for five days because of government blockades, that the regime took 40 of the 100 fuel trucks in exchange for safe passage of that. So, you know, the regime routinely steals aid. Um, it routinely, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a massive violator of human rights. It's used chemical weapons on its people. It, it, it has absolutely no right, frankly, to have a seat at the table in these discussions, but the UN continues to uphold whatever they do. And the regime has now allowed the UN to use these other two borders and it's um, these other two border crossings, uh, which it is now using. And uh, the the UN has welcomed that choice uh, by the president of Syria as if it's some very generous decision. He actually doesn't control those border crossings. They're they're controlled by rebels. But again, the the UN will defer to him at whatever cost to the Syrian people. I mean, just briefly, we don't have much time left, but what should we be doing, countries like Australia, to support people in need? Should we be sending aid our government in a different way? How can other countries help? Uh, so, I mean, I think there's a couple of ways that Australia can help. Firstly, uh, it needs to deliver aid. It needs to make sure that our foreign aid is going to organisations that are actually um, helping people on the ground. And that's organisations like... Um, the White Helmets, so Syria Relief and Development. There's a lot of groups on the ground who have been, who were digging people out of the rubble with what little support they had. And that's where, uh, you know, foreign aid needs to go through there, not through the United Nations until the UN stops this. Because frankly, um, you know, up until recently, uh, up in, in fact, up until this earthquake, the the uh, Syrian regime was actually manipulating foreign currency as well. So when when the UN for every dollar that the UN was putting into Syria, uh, the UN was uh, the regime was manipulating foreign t- currency and taking almost half of that 
um, and putting it in its own pockets. So, I mean, Australia needs to think very carefully about where best to spend its own money. Um, and I would argue at the moment it's not through UN agencies. Right. Well, we're going uh, to have to leave it there, but we do appreciate your analysis on this. Dr. Dara Conduit from the University of Melbourne, thank you very much for joining us on you. Hack. And just a reminder, if you do want to help out, you can find the Earthquake Fundraising Appeal details on our Instagram. They're still up there. Hack. Using a word like that is not acceptable. It is 2022. Grow up. Realise that words have weight. On Triple J. World Pride is launching. For a few weeks, Australia's at the centre of the queer universe. So on Hack, we're using this as an opportunity to speak with young Australians who found themselves leaders or change makers pushing for equality. There's heaps of them out there and they deserve to have their stories told. We're starting with someone you're familiar with. Consistently, one of the most photographed people on any Australian red carpet, you would have seen a lot of model Christian Wilkins on your social feeds, in the news. You'd hear him here on Hack. He's a regular guest on The Shake Up. There's a lot more to Christian Wilkins, though, than beautiful outfits and glamorous photo shoots because every picture that's taken of him, every article that's written about him, starts a conversation about gender and about identity. And those conversations are not always pretty. Dealing with hate, trolling, it's become part of his life. But Christian keeps turning up to events, keeps pushing boundaries, keeps calling out that hate, and he's become an example and a role model for young people who want to express themselves differently. So let's find out a bit more about him. Christian Wilkins, welcome to Hack. Thank you so much. That was such a lovely intro. Thank you. Hey, it's true. You know, a lot of people try to describe you There's lots of articles, there's lots of words, internet space dedicated to you. How do you describe yourself? Um, To be honest, I, and I know this might sound obvious, but I just go with gay, you know, (laughs) like that's, and it's the ethos of pretty much everything I do. And it actually took me a really long time to come to that point. But now it's the thing that I love most about myself. It's the community I love most. Like the LGBTQI plus community is fantastic. And to be part of that proudly um, honestly feels like an honour. Do you get asked a lot about pronouns and gender identity, all of that? Often, often. Um, And I mean, I definitely do think that the whole gender thing is a bit of a farce. I don't really understand it. I personally give it no more weight than the fact that I'm also like blonde because I went to the hairdresser, you know. Um, I I mean, I use he, him pronouns, but I definitely would view myself as non-binary. But yeah. You grew up in a pretty unique environment. What's normal for you may not be normal for a lot of other people. Your dad's a giant in the entertainment industry, uh, Richard Wilkins. You've been surrounded by celebrity publicity throughout your life. How was your childhood? Like, did you feel different as a child? Did you feel accepted as a child? Yeah, I mean, I think now looking back at it, I can recognise that it actually offered me quite a big privilege when it came to my identity that not a lot of other kids were offered. Like one example is as a child, I remember getting bullied by this guy at school and I literally bribed him to stop bullying me by giving him an Eminem CD, which my dad just had laying around the house and I knew that his parents wouldn't give him. Um, And, you know, there are sort of small things like that. I can see how I sort of worked it to my advantage. But all in all, I think I had a really great childhood, mainly because my mum doesn't work in the industry. She was always the one that kind of kept me a bit grounded. And both of my parents always made me feel very accepted and being around a 
entertainment space, which is often a very queer space, made me feel as though I was part of something larger. I mean, I guess there's probably people listening thinking, oh, because you grew up in that space and probably were exposed to a lot of queer people, maybe you didn't have any issues or problems in terms of your own identity. Would that be fair to say? No, I mean, it still took me a really long time to like the fact that I was gay. I remember sort of being quite young and sort of wishing that I was straight. I always really loved Disney and I would always watch these Disney films and the prince always ended up with the princess. And I felt very confused because I wanted to be a prince. And then also I think part of me kind of wanted to be a princess and I didn't really understand those feelings. And it really wasn't until I found a community that I actually kind of felt accepted and started dressing how I wanted to dress, started looking how I wanted to do. I always wanted to wear makeup, but then was too scared of like what people would say. And then I just kind of thought, well, fuck it. Did you have to come out at all? Was that an experience that you had? Was there a moment that you sat your family down and explained whether it was your sexuality, your thoughts on gender? Was that a big discussion for you with your family? Honestly, no. I And I feel very lucky for that. There was never this assumption that, I mean, probably because I used to refuse to go to bed until I did a lip sync performance of On a Night Like This at the age of four. <laughs> might have given something away, yeah, maybe. I think they might have blocked it. Um, but it's, there was never this expectation. I remember one time my dad's friend told me that I should come out to my dad that he really wanted me to come out and I went into his office the following Monday and I was crying and I was I was really quite upset and I was like you know so-and-so's told me that you want me to come out like why do you want me to say this and my dad turned to me and he was like darling if you need to say something for you go ahead and say it but you don't need to tell me anything for me and I never said it and I mean, it's, I mean it, it's obviously not a secret. I talk about boys very openly in the household. I feel very lucky because of that. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with model influencer Christian Wilkins about his story about growing up queer, setting new boundaries. Christian, when did the hate start? Because I imagine there was probably a period where you became more well-known in the public eye and you were probably receiving some criticism. Yeah, I would say Dancing with the Stars is kind of when it started. I think that's when... So um, you did this big national TV show, which, you know, and this was a few years ago, right? And that really put you in the national focus. Yeah, that was definitely kind of the first major thing that I did. And for the most part, the dancing audience are lovely. But there are definitely a few people that kind of... I don't know. I th- I think it's the fact that not only am I gay, I'm also very effeminate. And that seems to really kind of upset a lot of people for some reason. And they're definitely, you know, it's slowly been growing. And then the Logies last year is probably when it reached its peak because I wore a dress. And yeah, I don't, I, I sort of found the reaction slightly odd. I mean, I wasn't leading the Stonewall riots. I wore a dress to the Logies and the Gold Coast, you know, but the hate was quite intense. How bad does it get? Because, you know, I might see like some comments on an article or whatever, but is it much more than that? Do people troll you privately? How far does it stretch? Yeah, I mean, after the Logies, that was that was very intense. I got a lot of, it was mainly on Twitter. Um, Lad Bible did a couple articles on me 
it really kind of stemmed all from there. And then I got a lot of DMs, people telling me to OD, people telling me to die, which kind of goes back to my point of like, I wore a dress, like, get over it. Surely there are bigger things going on. I mean, there are bigger things going on. And I feel very lucky to have a great support base here so that I kind of can turn to them and be like, this is what's actually important is the people that know me and the people that love me. But still that level of abuse is... I mean, completely unacceptable. What do you think it is that makes people lash out like that? Why do you think, and I mean, you may not have an answer for this. I think it's the concept of praying to a different altar than everyone else. You know, it's suddenly it makes everyone else sort of re-evaluate what it is they hold dear and what their values are if someone else is clearly doing something completely different. And I think also... It's one thing to see Harry Styles do it or see Billy Porter do it over in America. But seeing someone a bit closer to home kind of makes it feel a little more real as to what's it going to do to our generations here. And I mean, I hope that it does change that. But I think that that's sort of the fear stemming from the hate. Surely you must have moments where you think, I am done with being this Christian Wilkins spokesperson for gender fluid fashion and uh, presentation in Australia, like that must be really exhausting. Yeah. And it's definitely a bit taxing, but I think at the heart of it, I really, really love what I get to do. And I know it might sound soppy, but if I can sort of make some young queer person's life just the tiniest bit easier by seeing visibility in the media in Australia, then it's kind of worth it. There is no change unless you're kind of seeing it. And it's all well and good to talk about it and try and implement it in the backseat. But unless you're kind of seeing it front and centre, I don't think that you're really allowing people that are younger, that don't work in the media, that aren't around the same environment that we are, to actually feel like they are accepted. And I think that it's honestly as something as simple as seeing a photograph in a magazine of a boy in a dress. And, you know, that makes someone feel okay to wear a dress if they want to. Suddenly it's somewhat accepted. There was this really interesting opinion piece written about you last year and it said, Christian, if Christian Wilkins were a cis woman, he'd be considered a fashion icon, but instead his fashion moments are more likely to be mocked than celebrated. He's labelled an attention seeker. What do you say to the people out there who are like, oh, he does it for attention. He loves the controversy. Oh, it try- That actually drives me crazy. I love fashion. I always have. And sure, is it not necessarily the norm? But honestly, if everyone dressed this way, I would continue dressing this way. It's not a need to get attention. It's purely because I love this form of identity. For me, it is my art form. And I appreciate it might not seem as creative as painting or sculpture or writing music. But this is how I choose to express myself. And it's something that brings me so much joy. And it's not about the attention at all. It's about the fun of getting ready. How do you see Australian society changing in the years ahead? Because I imagine you've seen it change quite a bit just in the last few years, maybe. And uh, in terms of the opportunities that you get in your modelling career as well, do you see it turning for the better? Yeah, definitely. And it does feel like it was really, really sudden. And don't get me wrong, I totally appreciate the fact that people have been marching and protesting and working away at getting equal rights for LGBTQI plus people for a very, very long time. But it does feel like all of a sudden within the past 
less than 10 years, there has been a shift of inclusion, which is really amazing to see. It's suddenly gone from something that I feel like was a dirty little secret to suddenly a superpower that people are really embracing. And I think that's beautiful. We spoke about the negative stuff. Let's put that aside. The positive stuff, you must get a lot of messages from young people in particular and parents, I would imagine. Like when you come on Hack, I know the text line always blows up with people sending messages saying, Christian is a role model for my son or daughter or um, for me. And I really respect him and look up to him. Is that something that keeps you going as well? Yeah, definitely. A a lot of mums reach out to me saying, (laughs) you know, I have a queer child. Um, It's good to have the mums on board. Exactly. I love the mums. And that they really appreciate the fact that there is visibility here. And that really does mean so much. I mean, again, I'm aware I'm no like Marsha P. Johnson, but to still provide something for that, I just think is so exciting because... That I didn't necessarily feel like I had that at home here when I was a child. So to try and provide that for people, I think is just wonderful. And I, I hope that it is a positive thing. You, as you now, could go and have a conversation with the young Christian, the boy who is perhaps feeling a bit, oh, I don't know, out of place in the world and not knowing where he could fit in. What would be your advice? What would be your message to that boy who might have been struggling? I feel like you're going to make me cry now. It really does get better, you know? And when you find a community, you find a home because we really do get to pick our family. And as part of that, we get to find who we are to our most authentic selves because it's such an amazing opportunity to kind of go through that struggle and when you're searching for yourself as a queer person, you don't just stop with what feels all right. You keep searching until you get to that place where you're like, yeah, this is really who I am. And finding that and loving that is the most wonderful thing. And I would just encourage my younger self to keep searching until you get to that point, because it really is beautiful when you find it. Christian Wilkins, you really are one of the most self-assured, confident people I've met and you are a role model to many people. Like that's very clear. You're a groundbreaker. And I hope this has given people a bit of an insight into you. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. And thank thanks you so, so much. much for joining us on Hack. Oh, thank you, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And a lot of messages coming through. Someone saying, Christian, you're just gorgeous the way you are. I could listen to your voice always. Very wise, very humble, very confident. Another person says, I love seeing Christian's photos from events. It always makes me smile seeing someone wearing what they want and always looking so vibrant. Someone else, Christian Wilkins, has helped me remove gender bias in my clothing And another person says, you're doing a great job in the way you carry yourself with pride and dignity and resilience to help inspire and give courage to others like you in the gay community to feel safe and accepted. And remember, if you want to see the full filmed interview, you can see it on the Hack website. Check out our socials as well. We'll have more big interviews during World Pride. Hack. Our forests are burning, wildlife is being killed, and the climate crisis is getting worse. But have you ever stopped to consider what is actually causing these fires? On Triple J. Do you wish you were vegetarian for environmental reasons, but you're not quite there? Because you still like a bit of meat. You do your best, though. You're trying to choose wisely. But what do you choose? Because chicken and salmon are the options people usually go for when they're avoiding red meat. But how do they stack up in terms of the environment? 
let's find out because someone's done a lot of research into this. It's Dr Katie Kempel from Griffith University and Katie's with us now. Hey Katie, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, thanks for having me. You've been weighing all this up, chicken versus salmon. I mean, give it to us. What is better for the environment? <laughs> it's obviously very complex. Um, but yeah, we looked at greenhouse gas emissions, fresh water use, nutrient pollution, and land and sea disturbance from both chicken and salmon production. And in total, chicken had more pressures because there's a lot more production of chicken. But if we looked at pressures per ton of production, chicken actually did slightly better than salmon. Um, but they're both really environmentally friendly options compared to things like beef or pork. Okay, so compared to red meat, yes, of course, or yeah, beef or pork, but there's still much better options available for people if they want to be choosing things that are best for the environment. Yeah, definitely. If you want to be completely eco-conscious, it's better to reduce your meat consumption and just go plant-based for sure. Where does Australia stand with all of this? Like, is our production of chicken and salmon better than other parts of the world? Yeah, that's a great question. There was a lot of variability between countries, but we actually found that Australia did quite well. Um, there's still some room for improvement, but with on-farm pressures, uh, Australia is about the 20th largest producer of chicken and the sixth largest producer of salmon, but we were in that top tier of efficiency. But when we looked at the feed pressures, uh, Australia did a little bit worse. There were some countries that did better, so there's still some room for improvement. And so, Katie, how do we improve things? What things do we need to be targeting to make the production of chicken and salmon more sustainable? Well, we found that feed was a huge pressure here and accounted for over half of the environmental pressure from both chicken and salmon. And when we think about feed, there's a couple things that we could potentially change. So you can think about uh, the different dietary compositions, so how much crops versus fish meal and fish oil go into those feeds. Um, there's also a lot of research going into novel feed ingredients like microalgae and insects. Uh, but there's a lot of other considerations there as well in terms of cost and nutritional value. Um, you can also think about countries that are doing well and maybe we can look more into them and see if there's some policies and practices that we could adopt to decrease our pressures overall. Hey, it's really interesting stuff. I know people are fascinated in this stuff because they do want to be making the best choices when they're purchasing things. If you want to read more, Dr. Katie Kempel's written a big piece on this. You can find it on The Conversation. Katie Kempel, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And we've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says... As a Tassie local, it's not salmon, Dave. Their farms have destroyed our native fisheries and they're feeding the salmon chicken scraps when they run out of salmon feed. Another person says, if I'm raising my own chickens and catching my own fish, which is better? Hack on Triple J. Big thanks again to all of our guests, especially Christian Wilkins. A lot of love coming in for Christian people. Really, you know, a fan of all of his advocacy and just so stoked to hear him speak so passionately about the issues that he cares about. That is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.